You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Revelation. Here's Nate. Well, as we continue our study through the book of Revelation, we are really into the thick of things and really what we would consider the consummation of all things as we turn to the latter half of the 14th chapter of the book of Revelation. And I would remind you, you know, as we embark on this particular section of the book of Revelation, that there is a special blessing that is promised to those who read and partake of this book, as we're told in chapter 1, verse 3. And I would also remind you that this book is special in the sense that it comes with its own divine outline, as found in Revelation 1, verse 19. Chapter 1 being the things which John had already seen, the visions he'd already received of Christ. Chapter 2 and 3 being the record of the seven churches in Asia Minor and Jesus' letters to those churches. And chapter 4 and 5 being the eternal vision of things yet to come. And chapter 6 all the way through chapter 18, the uh, seven-year great tribulation period. Chapter 19, the return of Christ. And chapter 20, the millennial reign of Christ. And, and then really at that point, the true consummation of all things and that the heavens and the earth as we know them at that point will melt away with a fervent heat after the 1,000 year rule and reign of Christ. And then chapter 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem that we receive from the Lord and where we will dwell with him forever and ever and ever. Amen. And so I would remind you of all of that, the great blessing and the great place that God is taking his people to, especially because as we turn to the second half of chapter 14 on through chapter 16, we are going to be reading of and studying the wrath of God poured out upon the world. And so let's read of it, uh, starting in chapter 14, verse 14. Uh, we've already seen at this point, the seventh seal has been loosed. Uh, in chapter 8, verse 8, the seventh seal of the uh, scroll that John saw in the throne room of God. The seventh and last seal has been loosed. Inside of the seventh seal are seven trumpets. And the seventh of those trumpets has been blasted. And we are about to get to the seven bowls that are released as a result of that seventh trumpet uh, here Today And it says in verse 14 of chapter 14, he says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle, across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, of course, this is the second coming of Christ. And as I've shared with you already, chapter 12, 13, and 14 form a parenthesis, it seems, in the book of Revelation, where what we're discovering is the entirety of the book of Revelation and, you know, really portions of, of redemptive history uh, given to us during this parenthesis 
from the standpoint and vision of God himself. We're going to see this event, the second coming of Christ, again in chapter 19 from the earthly perspective. But here we're seeing it from heaven and he sees it uh, as one coming with the clouds, uh, uh, sitting upon a white horse, thrusting in his sickle and reaping for the hour to reap has come. And this is not a good thing from for the earth. This is a negative thing. This is a judgment being pronounced upon them. Then another angel, verse 17, came out of the temple in heaven. And he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia, or furlongs, would indicate about 200 miles of blood as a result of this horrible battle and we'll read of it in just a few short chapters but the judgment and the wrath of uh, God now I, I should say this there are two words for wrath one is the idea of God's uh, of, of wrath which is anger from a settled disposition uh, the this is the wrath of God you know there's a calmness to him but this wrath and anger has been building up over time. But there is another word for wrath, which means a volatile, passionate anger. And uh, this would be where you'd actually see the outpouring of that wrath. And so uh, here we have the wrath of God, which has been building over time with great patience being now expressed upon planet Earth. And it says in chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. The Lord's wrath is going to be consumed here at the very end of these seven plagues inside of these seven bowls. And uh, his wrath will be consumed and complete and finished and we long for this day it will be painful but absolutely necessary and in scripture you see God's wrath for a few reasons Ephesians 5 verse 5 and 6 God's wrath is for disobedience Romans 1 verse 18 God's wrath is for the suppression of the truth and John 3 verse 36 indicates God's wrath for the rejection of Jesus Christ. But God's wrath is not found for God's people. It says in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9 that God did not appoint us, his children, to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is a unique expression for those who, in disobedience and suppression of the truth, have rejected Christ. And so in verse 2 he says, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps 
of God in their hands. And so God's throne room, you see it as a sea of glass mingled with fire. He had seen the throne room of God with that sea of glass previously. Here, however, he sees it as mingled with fire. It means that God's throne room is burning hot with judgment. And he speaks of those who had, uh, those standing there who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. They, these, these, uh, tribulation saints have these harps, these instruments standing with God in victory, worshiping, uh, the Lord. And I, I love that, uh, God describes them as those who have conquered the beast. They are those who had actually died as a result of the beast's persecution. But in the mind and heart of God, that is victory. And I think when we get to heaven, there's going to be such a, a, a re-accounting of what was victory and what was defeat inside of our lives. And here, God looks at these who have died as a result of persecution and said, they conquered the one who actually killed them. And they, verse 3, sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and on the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And so they sing this song of Moses, which is retitled the Song of the Lamb in heaven at this place. We're now back down in the uh, earthly view of things. And it is the view of heaven, but, uh, you know, the view from man's perspective, our perspective, the parentheses of chapter 12, 13, and 14 is over with. And, and John records that they're singing the song of Moses. Uh, this song, of course, would have been uh, an indicator of victory, right? I mean, the song of Moses was proclaimed after the people of Israel passed through the Red Sea in great and incredible victory. And so this is a song of victory that they're singing in heaven, a victory dance, a victory party in heaven, so to speak. And I love what they praise God for. They praise him for his deeds, everything that he's accomplished up to his po this point. They praise him for the ways in which he's accomplished that victory in verse 3. They praise him for his name. They praise him for his character, so to speak. It's what the name would indicate. They praise him for his holiness, uh, verse 4, uh, that he was holy and righteous as he uh, accomplished all of these works. And they worship him, and they praise him for his judgments, his righteous acts. And uh, so, you know, from the end, there will be a no questioning of God. There will be a worshiping of God for all that he's decided and all that he has done. And after this, John says in verse 5, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And so these seven special angels come out holding the seven plagues. It is an ominous moment. They're wearing these uh, bright, linens with golden sashes around their chests. And notice that they are pure, they are bright, 
They are golden. This speaks of a sanctity to them, a sanctification, a holiness within them. They, They might be used for judgment, but they are still holy. And in verse 7, it says, And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who live forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, I want you to see something here that's very important. Here we are seeing in the throne room of God what is taking place really right before God pours out his wrath upon the world. This is the introduction to the greatest portion of the tribulation. This is what many would refer to as the great tribulation. And these angels come out with these broad flat saucers that would of course pour rather quickly. No small-necked bottle, but a a large saucer that just, you know, uh, that just dumps quickly. This wrath will be poured out in a rapid manner. And, And these angels come out and they receive these bulls filled with the wrath of God. And I want you to see that in this moment, they receive these bulls. And the sanctuary is filled with the glory of God uh, from his power. And I want you to see that the wrath of God and the glory of God absolutely positively mix. In fact, you could say that in heaven, in the throne room of God, this is the holiest of places. This is the the, the true and real holy of holies. You know, what you had in the temple or in the tabernacle and the holy of holies with the ark of the covenant and the lid on the ark of the covenant that was that had uh, you know golden cherubim placed upon it you know that was just a picture of the heavenly reality the throne room of god where the angels are flying around the throne of god the real cherubim that are singing holy 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 is the lord god of hosts i mean this is the real holy of holies and in that real holy of holies the wrath of god is birthed it's birthed from his holiness because he is so pure because he is so righteous Because he is so just and true and a God of justice, his wrath must come forward. And I want you to see that his wrath doesn't come from a dark place. It doesn't come from a place of impurity. No, the wrath of God does not come from an unholy or unrighteous anger. No, the wrath of God actually comes and stems from his holiness. It is a by product of who he is as the holy and righteous God and as he looks upon sin and evil as he looks upon lust and greed as he looks upon the shameful acts of the human species the response of his holiness is that of wrath and the only way for a man to free himself from experiencing the wrath of God upon his life is to take God's provision for his wrath. God's provision is simply that God made a decision to place his wrath upon his own son, that whoever believes in his son would not perish but have everlasting life. 
But these people at this time, this world at this time is completely outside of Christ, uh, has rejected Jesus at this point. It has been a worldwide obvious rejection. They've received the Antichrist and the wrath of God is now overflowing and ready to be poured out upon the world. And of course, the question then is, well, what is this useful for? Why would God do this? Why would God pour out his wrath? I believe one reason for this is that God is going to introduce during this season worldwide revival. I believe much of the revival will take place during this great tribulation. I believe there will be the destruction of the followers of Antichrist at this point. And I believe that there will be a breaking of the stubbornness of Israel and the world will wake up during this entire period of great tribulation. But here, the wrath of God is going to be poured out. And and so we're there in the throne room of God, the Holy of Holies, and we see the glory of God and the wrath of God mixing in his throne room. Very similar to the cross, by the way. Very ominous. God's glory, the most glorious thing that God has ever done for mankind, and God's wrath mixed in one place on the cross of Christ. Now we move on into chapter 16, and we observe this wrath. He says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple, telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now, just so that you know, many people in turning to these seven bowls will spiritualize these plagues. Uh, you know, sort of find other definitions for what these plagues must mean. But these plagues are very similar to the plagues that were brought upon Egypt before the Exodus. And of course, when we read of those back in the book of Exodus, we aren't really tempted there to spiritualize those plagues. And so I see no reason why we would need to spiritualize these plagues in our modern world. I mean, in one sense, God is going to, at this point, you know, produce an exodus for the tribulation saints and deliver his people, his own special people, just as he did in the days of Egypt with the nation of Israel. And he set them free. God is setting people free. And so I do not feel the need to spiritualize these plagues at all. I believe that uh, in some way, these plagues will come to pass as these bowls are poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world. So the first angel, verse 2, went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. And this, of course, is fascinating because those who have embraced the beast and worshipped the beast, worshipped his image, uh, they begin to suffer. Yeah, that's a, such an interesting thing here because what we're discovering is that really everybody suffers for their worship. You know, Christians will suffer for their worship in the form of persecution, uh, ridicule, sacrifice. There will be a little bit of suffering in this world, but in the end, it, it really works out well for a believer. As Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he said, these are momentary light afflictions in comparison with our eternal way of glory. I mean, if you really think about where we're going and the promise of God for us, whatever we might 
deal with in this life is really no big deal in comparison with uh, what we're going to receive uh, in the future. The, the trials of today are nothing in comparison to the glory of tomorrow. But these worshipers who receive the mark of the beast and worship the image of the beast, they suffer, but of course without promise and without future glory. And so they receive these sores as a result of bowl number one, perhaps an allusion to Zechariah chapter 14, verse 12. Then in verse three, it says the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. This speaks of some kind of contamination of the sea. And at this point, uh, you know, the world cannot exist much longer in this condition. We are close to the end. Now, Revelation chapter 8, there was partial contamination of the sea when the second trumpet was blown. But this is a major uh, thing. The entire ocean becomes like blood of a corpse. And obviously the world isn't going to make it too much longer at this point. In verse 4, it says the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And so the fourth bowl, the water supply is affected. This is very similar to, uh, you know, classic historical military tactic to affect the water supply. And I heard the angel, verse 5, in charge of the waters say... Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I want you to see that, just the eternal heavenly perspective, that God has now avenged the blood and the persecution of his prophets, of his people. I think this is, a, is important to see because vengeance is the Lord's and it does belong to him. And I think it's tempting in this life to wonder at the unjust treatment of so many of God's servants, so many that have been persecuted, that have died for their faith or have been ridiculed for their faith. And we at times wonder, God, where are you? in the middle of all of this, but, but God is there. God sees. It's just that his timing is so much different than ours. And so this angel sings this song and, and claims that God has been just and has avenged the blood of his saints and prophets. And in verse seven, he says, I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. And I just continue to remind you that in heaven, we are going to agree with every decision that God has made. You know, at the end and at that altar, every decision, every choice that God has made, we will say true and righteous, true and just are your judgments. Well, the fourth angel, verse eight, poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. Uh, they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. And so the sun, which has been, you know, at best, 
undervalued by mankind and underappreciated the faithfulness of the Son, the, the warmth and the growth and the health that we receive from the Son, uh, the faithfulness of it for our crops and our sustenance. At worst, mankind has worshipped the Son. Here it is no longer reliable and it actually becomes a weapon. It begins to scorch people with fire. But at the end of this, they still do not repent and give God glory. There's a hard-heartedness in the soul of man. The fifth angel poured out his bull on the throne of the beast. And its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish. And cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Mentioned once again. God is revealing himself in a very real way. And people are unable and unwilling to repent. Like Pharaoh who had a very hard heart. Witnessing the miracles of God. The judgment of God. They are unwilling to repent of their deeds. People often say. If God were to simply show up. If fire came down from heaven. I would believe him. Well a day is going to come where fire will come down from heaven. And you won't believe him. And you won't repent. And so. Uh, you know, the hard-heartedness of man, we're seeing it in a horrible way at this moment. The sixth angel, verse 12, poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, great prominent river in the Bible, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed, God says. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And so the sixth angel pours out his bull and the river Euphrates is dried up, paving the way for the kings of the east. Not much is known of them, but they gather together to battle against uh, God. The great day of battle uh, of God the Almighty. And in the middle of all this, the Lord gives a declaration. He says, stay pure, my people. Keep your Garments, And so they gather together at Armageddon, which is Megiddo, which has seen thousands of battles over the course of history. And there will be this one final battle against each other, I believe, first and then against God. And the seventh angel, verse 17, poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth, so great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great, remember that name, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. And with that seventh bull, we are now going to move into a section where we see God judge specifically this city 
this system called Babylon. And we'll get to that next time as we journey through the book of Revelation together. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.